A lot of times, people look at someone who changes the world and thinks, man, that person must have known exactly what they were doing right from the very beginning. A lot of times, people are dead wrong. Creating comes from a place of not knowing exactly what comes next, but being willing to try to make something new anyway. Sure, trying something new takes courage, but it's more about being willing to try things and not be concerned with the outcome. Also, in reality, individuals don't change culture. People join forces to do that. If a company wants to change the world, then they need to develop a culture that promotes creativity. Dieter Shirley, the co-creator of CryptoKitties and the CTO and lead architect of Dapper Labs, explains the creative process he has learned to employ. We would try all sorts of crazy stuff. And of course, most of it didn't go anywhere. But that was how we learned. And so even if CryptoKitties hadn't taken off, we would have learned a ton and been able to try something else. Creative people often make objects that other people collect. Creative types do this because creating new things helps them to interact with the materials of the world and then shape them into a certain type of order. Collectors collect because these items help provide meaning to their lives. In this way, both creators and collectors are attempting to create order. Today, these objects can be digital too. CryptoKitties, digital blockchain cats, the latest basketball sneaker, or the hottest painting are now all one and the same. People will queue up for a digital collectible just like they would stand in line at the sneaker store. They'll outbid each other for digital memorabilia just like they would for that painting. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Dieter talks about all he and his team learned when they created CryptoKitties, the limitations that blockchains such as Ethereum placed on their ability to scale CryptoKitties and other similar projects, and how they've applied that knowledge to NBA Top Shot, which are digital NBA and WNBA collectibles they've built on their blockchain. Flo, enjoy the episode. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have a very fascinating guest or a fascinating subject for sure. He is the co creator of CryptoKitties and the CTO and lead architect for Dapper Labs, Dieter Shirley. Dieter, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me today, Albert. All right. I am fascinated, absolutely fascinated by the world of NFTs. I am a noob at best in this industry uh, <laughs> or, this, or this technology. But for our audience who's not familiar or just hasn't been reading up on it, tell us exactly what is Dapper Labs and what do you guys do? I mean, don't feel bad being a noob. I think the industry is a noob. So, you know, I think, you know, it goes back to 2017 at the absolute latest for NFTs. So <laughs> I think it's uh, relatively early days. Thanks so much for having me here. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, just a little bit about uh, us. I mean, the story of Dapper Labs, you really have to go all the way back to Axiom Zen. Axiom Zen is sort of an innovation studio. Basically, the idea was a, a startup that builds startups. And by 2017, we'd actually rolled out two other companies, Rautific uh, Vehicle uh, Management Service um, and ZenHub, which is a, a project management tool uh, for that fits right into GitHub. And so in 2017, we wanted to build something in the blockchain space, and we decided to focus on, on a consumer angle. Uh, it seemed like it was an aspect to blockchains that hadn't really been explored that much. And we decided to make a fun little cat game. We figured people on the internet love cats and what could be more internet than the blockchain. So we launched that at the, uh, at the end of 2017. Um, and, you know, within a couple of weeks of launching, we brought down the whole Ethereum network. <laughs> I remember this. Yeah. It was virtually unusable for a couple of weeks because you just, we brought in just a whole slew of new users and, you know, something like 40% of, of CryptoKitties users had never touched crypto before. And, and so we really knew we were onto something. So first part of 2018, we spun it out into Dapper Labs. We took all the IP, most of the staff, and uh, did a, a fundraising round led by Andreessen Horowitz and, and Union Square Ventures. And we built, uh, we built Dapper Labs. And it was really apparent to us, you know, we learned sort of three big lessons from CryptoKitties. And we built three products that addressed each of those lessons, right? So the first was first lesson was is that people care about this stuff. That if you build something that appeals to a consumer audience, they'll come in. They they want 
digital collectibles. They love this idea of having something that, you know, is real in the sense that they own it. It's, you know, they can sell it. It's independent. They can keep it. You know, the company can't take it from them. It's, it's not just sort of, you know, leased to them. And, uh, but it, you know, a lot of people don't have, you know, really a financial side to them. And so something that just regular folks can understand and taps into their fandom. So we started working with NBA and, and that of course became NBA Top Shot. Another big lesson we learned from CryptoKitties is just getting into this stuff is hard. And, you know, you have to go and you have to create your MetaMask account and write down your 12 secret words that no one explains to you what they mean. Only that if you lose them, terrible things will happen to you. <laughs> and so we built Dapper Wallet, which is, in my opinion, hands down the best consumer onboarding experience for crypto. People come in with nothing but an email address and a credit card and they can get started right away. And so they can play with it before they have to understand it. And with CryptoKitties and almost every other experience, you kind of have to understand it before you can interact with it. And I think that that just turns a lot of people off. And then, of course, the third thing we learned was is that Ethereum just can't handle this kind of scale. And, uh, and so we ended up, uh, you know, we did a ton of research on other blockchains and, and we ended up deciding that we really needed to build our own and that, that became Flow. And so, um, you know, those are the three pillars of our company. Each of those products are doing very well. And we're really excited to see how each of those is going to grow. I think I own $3 of flow from Coinbase. It was <laughs> when they ask you to learn about new uh, blockchains, like, oh, okay, I'll learn about it. And so I think I own, I'm a proud owner of $3 worth of flow. But who knows, maybe by the end of the conversation, I'm just going to drop some more on it. You know, let's take people back to that moment in case they're not aware of what happened. So CryptoKitties, you already mentioned, was the first game that leveraged, at the time, the Ethereum network. And I remember reading articles that people were, essentially spending large sums of money or an inordinate amount of time, whatever you want to call it, to buy, purchase, trade, exchange these digital kittens. And I thought to myself, like, this reminds me of, and it's, and you know, you can correct me, of course, I don't know if I'm right. This reminds me of that craze that occurred many years ago, like Tamagotchi, like the digital pets that were in, that were in these like handheld things. Like, I didn't understand that then too. Kids wanted them. They tried to make them unique and collectible. Like you could raise your digital pet. It was like a, it's a little fob. It had like a, you know, a black and white screen. I know that's not completely related, but to me, it was like the digital pet. Like, why would I want a digital pet? Like, I don't understand. But then I thought to myself, I don't need to understand this stuff. As long as somebody wants it, that's what makes sense. Like if people want things, I'd love for you to explain, you know, how did you guys stumble upon this whole idea of CryptoKitties? Explain to our audience what it exactly was and kind of give us an idea of like, what were your expectations of building it? And then, you know, it was a very rapid ascension, right? Where like, what, we just taken it back, like, oh, this is just an experiment. Like, it's gone wild. I'd love for you to explain how this all kind of began. Yeah, for sure. The initial idea was cats on a blockchain. Like, it was literally <laughs> as simple as that. And, you know, sort of the, the question was, is how, how do we, what, what makes that interesting? What makes that fun, right? And there were two threads we were pulling on there. One was just the basic collectible aspect of it. We figured that, you know, some people just like to collect stuff. And, you know, CryptoKitties, it was you know, what would now be called generative art. It was a, there was an, an algorithm for combining the different genetic traits for these cats. Every cat has its own genome, um, completely unique. As far as I know, no two cats have the same genome. And then, you know, like, you know, in the real world, right, your genome expresses your, itself in, in your phenotype and, and exactly how the cats look. And so all the different cats, you know, they all look very different and you can, you know, you can probably find, you know, all sorts of different combinations. And, and then the game side of it was like creating those combinations um, and finding those combinations and saying, oh man, it would look super cool if, you know, if these, uh, you know, super surprised eyes, you know, were on a, a cat that had uh, antlers. So it looks like it's surprised that it itself has antlers, right? And so there was these wacky combinations. And so, you know, some of the cats are just like, you know, kind of derpy looking. A few of them are even kind of boring, but like some of the combinations are just like amazing when you see them. And in a sense, it's like it's the players themselves can create those those moments. Um, yes, you know, you know, we sort of created the paints, right? right? We created the the different pieces of the cats. But in a sense, our players were the artists that were combining those things in, into what they wanted to. And so we saw a bunch of different personas. We saw people who saw it completely as a puzzle. Um, there's uh, one guy who's uh, who goes by the name Kaigani online, and he took the genome and he mapped it out and he he reverse engineered the the algorithm we used to, to combine the genes between cats. 
And he bought a few cats, but he was never into it. He wasn't a collector. He didn't want to do the breeding thing. But to him, it was an interesting puzzle just to figure out what the math was behind it all. There were other people who almost treated it like a business um, and would go in and, and like have a very uh, regimented way of how they breed the cats to try and create combinations that they thought would, would be popular. But mostly it was, you know, people, there were, there were collector personas that would just, you know, collect as much stuff as they could. And then there were um, people who were playing more of the game side and just seeing what different combinations and new genes that you could you could come by uh, breeding together different uh, different cats together. So yeah, it was a collectible and it was and it was a game, uh, all sort of all at the same time. And I, I mean, our expectations were zero, right? Our expectations were that if we build something, we will learn something. Yeah. And we didn't know what we were going to learn. We didn't really even, in a sense, understand what we were building. And it actually kind of took us a while and, and to sort of see how the users interacted with it to really understand sort of what we had created. And like I said, we learned like three valuable lessons that led to three, you know, I think incredible products, you know, now four years later. But um, it was, you know, it was, it was kind of what Axiom Zen did, right? Like we would try all sorts of, of crazy stuff. And of course, most of it didn't go anywhere. But, you know, that was how we learned. And so even if CryptoKitties hadn't taken off, uh, we would have learned a, a ton and, and been able to, to try something else. Yeah, it's a pretty fascinating stuff. The saying on your website that I find fascinating is serious business of fun and games on the blockchain. So, you know, you mentioned the first one was like, hey, we want to explore and learn. We didn't really have an intent, kind of like you said, you just wanted to explore and learn. And you know, we, we joked about it. We joke about it at our company all the time. You can't learn anything by reading or watching. You got to do it. You got to do it. And then when you do it, you'll learn something, right? So now you've learned this information. You said it branched out three separate products, pretty fascinating stuff. But the game, the, the like thesis or the ethos of Dapper, the serious business of fun and games on the blockchain. When did you know like that's the direction you were going to be? Because you was it from the very beginning like we want to make games using blockchain? And then also I'd love to understand the why. Why why did you feel like this was needed like, or, or necessary or going to be helpful to society to make games specifically using the blockchain? The naysayers or people that argue about this stuff often say, "Well, blockchain hasn't solved any problems. It hasn't doesn't have a you know, you you're laughing, right? You know what the naysayers say. But I'd love to understand like kind of like the ethos of the spirit of the company and kind of understand the why behind it. Yeah. I mean, I guess one of the lessons that CryptoKitties taught us that didn't sort of lead directly to a product, um, but became very apparent as we you know, saw our players interacting with it was just that the games are just such a good vector for getting people to engage with new stuff. Um, you know, it's sort of an old saying, right? Like, you know, all technologies used for games at some point, but, you know, I think the psychology of that is, is pretty sound, right? Like, you know, you have this new technology and it has new capabilities and, and you can either use it for something fun or you can use it for something serious, right? <laughs> like you could use it for something meaningless, but that's not very interesting, right? Yeah. And if you look at the serious side of it, right? Like serious things are serious. Like I don't want to take a risk with my life savings. I don't want to take a risk with my mortgage, with my insurance policy. You know, all of these people, even my internet access, right? Like all of these people are saying, hey, technology, you know, blockchain technology can can remake these industries. And I believe it can. Yeah. But why would we trust this new technology that no one can understand? No one's going to figure it out. No one's going to read all these white papers, right? And so the way we get people to, to interact with this stuff and learn to trust it is by just letting them use it. And how do we get them to want to use it? Well, we find that part of their lives where they want something new, right? Where novelty is an advantage, but it's still meaningful to them. It's not something that doesn't matter to them, right? And so that's exactly entertainment. That is exactly games, right? It's mm -hmm. meaningful to us. We care about it. Sometimes we care too much, right? Whether you're a sports fan or a video game player, right? Like we get over-invested sometimes, but that's fun. That's part of what the fun is, but we still seek novelty there and it's okay for these things to be new. In fact, it's an advantage for these things to be new. And so, you know, what is the reason why we we take the seriously the business of fun it's because that's how we're going to get people to try this stuff out right, right. there was a time when e-commerce on the internet was like everyone knew that was a terrible idea right it was like witchcraft like you mean book <laughs> yeah putting your credit card into a website like what are you nuts are you insane right yeah and now this last year like i don't know i can't think of the last time i bought anything that wasn't on the internet and so 
it's just one of those things that like, and how did we do that? We didn't do that by having explainer videos about DN how DNS works and the, the format of TCP <laughs> headers, right? We did that by, you know, like creating Reddit and, um, you know, and Twitter and, you know, even like stuff like Congregate and online games, right? Like we got people into it having fun. And then once they used the technology and started to not understand it in the sense that like an academic and understanding to explain it, but understand it in the sense of getting a visceral sense of what its capabilities and limitations are and what you can and cannot trust, right? And eventually we, we figured it out. And like I said, now we all use uh, e-commerce. So I think blockchain is the same way. We need to bring people in with stuff. And yeah, of course, there's some people who are willing to take a flyer on like finances and, and on all of this stuff. And that's fine. Like, I don't want to stop them. But for most of us, you know, if we're going to try something new, we need to do it in a part of our lives that that is a little less serious. You know what I mean? Yeah, I like the way you phrase that as it's very difficult to trust something that is like has potential consequence if you're wrong. And I when I remember the first time I heard smart contracts on the Ethereum network, I relate I heard I was thinking about it, like, you know, it removes like the arbiter. Right now we have like an arbiter that judges. So for example, if I was to buy a car from Dieter, I would have a bank that would pay you, then I would pay the bank, you give me the car. There's the triangle. And I remember the original blockchain videos are like, well, we can remove the triangle. Like we can remove the bank. We'll just have the blockchain. will know this. And I was like, but how does it know it gave me the car? <laughs> right? <laughs> like, yep. I can see how the money went through, but what if I don't get a car yep. or what if the car Dieter gives me is a lemon and I want to take it back and I want him to take it back. How do I issue a refund? And in all these cases, we use arbiters, we use judges, we use banks, we use somebody to figure this out. And so I remember thinking like, this makes no sense. What do you mean the blockchain is going to know the answer? That doesn't like the blockchain can't do anything, <laughs> right? And it's like, oh, these computers will know. And so I'd like the way you frame it. Like, hey, when it is like that, that is grave. It's hard to say I'm going to start buying computers. I mean, cars on blockchain, but playing these games, I can see it. This totally makes sense. Like, yeah, maybe it will buy a digital kitty and try to breed it. I don't know. <laughs> you know, when that first started going down or when you guys first started planning the crypto kitties, did Tamaguchi play a role in that at all? Because it, I remember when, I don't even know if you know what I'm talking about, those digital fobs. Oh, no, sure. I mean, you know, lots of people reference Tamagotchi. Um, they reference, you know, Beanie Babies. Yeah. I mean, we just wanted to create an experience that we thought was going to be fun. Yep. So, you know, I suppose we could have lend, leaned into the Tamagotchi uh, analogy a little bit better and like made it so the cats, you know, you feed the cats and and all of this <laughs> stuff. But one of the things that is like kind of mind blowing about uh, the blockchain that has never been true in software before is, is that that stuff, that stuff just exists forever, right? Like yeah. when you build a thing, when you build a chair, right? Like so long as you keep it, you know, out of the, the moisture and the fire, right? Like it'll last for, you know, multiple lifetimes. We've never had that in the world of digital assets before, right? When I create something in World of Warcraft or whatever, like as soon as that company goes away, as soon as that game goes away, then all of the stuff in it goes away. CryptoKitties can live beyond that. And so the idea that, you know, this is a very long-winded way of me saying that well, we didn't want the idea that the kitties could die, because part of what's cool about blockchain is, is that these kitties are going to outlive all of us. Right. And so, you know, and it's not very fun to have a game where you have to feed your cat, but not feeding it has no downsides, right? So Tamagotchi was, you know, is a very distinctly a, a time-limited experience, right? No matter how good you are at taking care of your pet, it eventually dies and you start over again. And that's fine. That's that game, right? Yeah. And you could definitely build that game on the blockchain. And I think it would be interesting. But we wanted to go into this more like you've got this, you know, we wanted to lean into the like the endless nature of digital assets and, and how they can, you know, potentially outlive physical counterparts. Yeah. And, you know, I'm curious, I'd love to hear your perspective on this. And I know this is not a technical perspective, but I'm just curious since you have relationships or you've met people that are very into collecting collect digital collectibles, right? NFTs. The way I described it to my son is we saw a movie where like there was a heist movie, you know, and they like stole a piece of art and like some authenticator or whatever comes and checks it and like makes sure that that's real art. And I said, that's what NFTs are supposed to be. <laughs> and they said, what do you mean? It's like, you can't rip them off. Like you make whatever you put on the NFT network or um, a blockchain network, that item it cannot be reversed. It cannot be duplicated. It cannot be engineered. It's like, it is that permanent thing. And instead of a person coming and authenticating it, 
all these computers agree to it, right? Give us an idea of the mindset of the digital collector, because I'm curious about this, like, because I can see why once you know that it's authenticated, that makes it more appealing, right? I want that. No different from people who buy like first run Jordans and they never wear them. You know, like they see them in their glass case. Like, I don't know. Why do you have this shoe? It's like, no, it's in my, I I want it. (laughs) I guess no other reason than I want it. Is the mindset of a digital collector the same as an art collector, the same as a person who collects hobby things, artifacts? It's just, there's just an intrinsic value. Is there like a big, have you noticed any difference in the cultural phenomena of people that want to collect these things via NFT versus the physical world? No, I I mean, it taps into the same fundamental aspect of human nature, right? Some of us are collectors. I'm not a huge collector, um, but I don't know. I think it makes sense, right? Like we have, what we collect says something about us. And the, you know, the, the friend of yours who, who wants those pristine Air Jordans, um, limited edition Air Jordans and, and keeps them in the box. Like it's not a shoe. It's not a, it's not a thing to keep your feet from getting cut when you walk down the street yeah. or to let you jump a little higher. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's not for basketball. Like the guy will not no, wear them, <laughs> but it's, it's an embodiment of that individual's attachment to the culture of basketball that led to the creation of that shoe in the first place. Right. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, I know you tell me that your friend Jose, I know that your friend, right. Their favorite sport isn't hockey. I know that already. Right. (laughs) Right. I know that your friend, right. Is not somebody who, you know, their greatest dream in life is to go to the Louvre, right? Like we know something about that person because they have chosen that thing. They have curated that aspect of their lives and said, look, this is what's important to me. And having an external physical embodiment of that, something that you can look at and say, that's mine. And it means something. And the fact that there is a limited edition of those is how I differentiate myself from all the other people who didn't go to the the lengths that it took me to get this thing. It's like, that's how fanatical I am. I will wait in line for the midnight drop, whatever, however they do it. I think they have like like they kind of just tell people it's being released tonight at these five stores and people like rush to them. Exactly. They can't wait to go. Exactly. And that's, that's how they want to see themselves. They want to be a part of that, that tribe. And they want to, they want to prove it to themselves. They want to prove it to their friends, to the, to the world. And so, you know, Jay Leno, why does he have all this? Career? He can't drive all those cars. Right. <laughs> but it's, it's like, imagine the satisfaction he has knowing that he has what I assume is the world's greatest car collection. Yeah. And so, you know, we are not all Jay Leno, right? We all can't be the, you know, have the world's greatest X collection, but we can all have the things that matter to us. And when you talk to the people who are, especially the ones coming from the physical collectible world, they're like, man, this, this hits all of the same buttons that physical collectibles do. And now I don't have to worry about water damage, about fire damage, about getting things authenticated, about knowing, you know, their provenance, about knowing, you know, whether or not, you know, this is a trustworthy, you know, issuer of collectibles and they're not just going to print a million more of these, right? You know, and the shipping time, right? Like yeah. imagine you want to collect this thing and and you know, and you have to wait two weeks just to see it. And then you look at it for two minutes and then you have to put it in a box because you're afraid the UV is going to get to it. So <laughs> It keeps all of the aspects that they love, which is, I know this thing is legitimate and I know that there's a limited number of these. And therefore this has the value of telling myself, the world, everyone that I care about this thing to this extent, but it doesn't have all of those issues that, that physical stuff does. Yeah. And I can see exactly how this, the idea of original, not duplicated uniqueness and I think, I don't know if I mentioned like the authentication of it, the fact that it's authenticated, like that is basically uniquely yours can be very appealing to collectors. Talk a little bit about how did the pro sports league start getting involved? Because this is such new territory, you know, like, I don't know if we think of sports teams as innovative, not innovative, embracing technology, not embracing technology. You know, they're finally starting to embrace gambling, for example. Um, but how did the partnership between the NBA, the UFC, how did that start happening? Did they knock on your door and say, hey, we want to make collectibles? Because they obviously, sports memorabilia has a lot of collectibles, cards. We already talked about the shoes. Like The two are tied very closely together. How did that relationship begin? Did they reach out to you? Did you guys reach out to them? Whose idea was it to like, hey, let's take these moments in time and make them NFTs? I honestly don't know if NBA called us or we called them. Um, we talked to so many IP holders in the first half of 2018. CryptoKitties came out. It just it was all over the news. And a lot of IP holders are like, look, 
we understand that, right? We understand the collectibles market. And here is a finally a credible way for there to be a digital version of that, right? And so we had a bunch of, of folks uh, that called us. And, uh, and of course, just a really large number of folks that were more than willing to answer the call when we reached out to them. The reason why we went with NBA and, and you know, I, <laughs> I don't want to brag, but like there was a long list of IP holders that were, were seriously uh, interested in engaging with us. No, it makes sense. Part of it was the sports collectible thing, right? Like sports collectibles are probably the biggest collectibles market sort of outside of cars. But when we talked to the NBA, their team got it. Their team wasn't, oh, you made a bunch of money. We want to make a bunch of money too. Their team wasn't hey, here's a new product line we can sell. Their team was saying, here is a way for our fans to engage with the sport that they love in a digital native way that is going to make our fans happy, right? And yes, there's a business model around it and there's a revenue stream and all of that stuff. But like they were really committed to the idea that this was not something we were going to do in the next couple of years, that this was the beginning of a partnership between us that was going to last you know, five, 10 years, and that this was going to be the beginning of a new part of basketball culture. Now, we didn't know, they didn't know if it was going to be successful or not, but that's the mindset. That's what they wanted out of it was for it to be another thing in the category of, you know, special edition basketballs, jerseys, you know, limited edition shoes. They felt like this could literally be something like that. And when we started showing them the visuals, you know, like imagine, imagine the first time they saw those, those cubes, right. And with the, the players in them, their, their team was just like ecstatic. And, you know, I think at that point in time, everyone knew that this, you know, it was up to the fans, but if the fans accepted it, it, it made sense that this will legitimately be part of NBA fandom uh, indefinitely at that point. And I'm just really glad that we chose them as a partner, because I think, you know, we could have done all sorts of other stuff, but a lot of teams, it's, we weren't talking to the core team at the company. We were talking to a team whose job it was to monetize IP. And that was a big difference. And, and that was why we went ahead with NBA. I'm really excited. I think now that we've shown it, right? They had the vision to see it before we could show it to anybody. And now the other, the other leagues are, are seeing what it looks like in action. And, and I'm looking really forward to seeing what we can do with other sports. Yeah, I want to explain this to people who have no clue what we're talking about right now. So if anyone <laughs> is listening and you have not visited NBATopshot.com, go ahead and check it out, NBATopshot.com. When Dieter talks about a cube, he's talking about a digital cube. It's like a graphic display. On one side, it looks like an image, or I, I know they can all be different. On one side, it can be an image. On another side, it can be a date, maybe a factoid. And then there's a highlight reel. And this highlight reel is you know, some of the big moments of big games of your favorite player, your favorite team, whatever the case may be. And when you buy it, it is yours forever. And are, are some of these, are they all single quantity or some of them have multi-quantity, but there's only like five. How, how does that work? They're all limited edition. Mm -hmm. um, so we have, we have different tiers, right? So we have like the ultra rare tiers all the way down to, to common ones. And, um, but even the common ones will have uh, we do them in seasons, right? And then when the season is over, then we won't we won't mint any more of those. And so they're they're all limited edition. Each of them is is unique in that they have their own serial number. But it is you know you and I might have uh, both have uh, moments uh, with the same play in them, and maybe they're the same edition, so so that you know they're the same except for the serial number, um, or maybe you know you have an, an ultra rare version of the same play that I I have a, a more common version of. And obviously the, the, the rarity of, of yours would be, would be greater. Yeah. It's akin to a Jersey or a, a sports card, right? Sure. In that like the Jersey you have is in some ways similar to the Jersey I have, but they are different, you know? And, and so, and in this case, you know, we have, we have a serial number to, to track them. And then the blockchain also lets us track the provenance of them. And so, you know, there's a bunch of NBA players who, have owned moments and, and you can actually, in some cases you can, you can go and buy a moment that one of the, one of the NBA players has themselves owned at, at various times. And you can prove on chain that, that that ownership happened and that that was the one that they owned in the past. No, it makes total sense. It's no different from game worn shoes. We use shoes as an analogy, mm -hmm. like, you know, some, some of the shoes, if 
shacks actually warn them? Well, they're more valuable. They're game worn. Absolutely. You know, when I go through the the way it's set up, I'm assuming right out the gate, like, does the client, does the partner, does the MBA help determine, predetermine some of the value of these moments? Because there are certain moments that are iconic in time. I don't know how big of a sports fan you are, but I'm guessing you definitely know a lot about the NBA now that there's partnerships here, like Jordan's dunk from the foul line or his legendary game winning shot for, you know, his sixth championship where he kind of pushes off Byron Russell of uh, the jazz or when Jordan shot it over uh, Craig Elo and he does the jump pump fist. Or even, even you know, I, I use Jordan because he's the most iconic figure probably in the world. His shoulder shrug, right? The moment after he hits all the threes against the trailblazers, like pulls the shrug. That's an iconic moment. Did they already come in and say like, hey, these moments in time, by the way, we want to make them ultra rare because it, it seems to make sense. Like who is determining rarity and importance and value of moment? Yeah, so it's a partnership. So the league, um, they want control over the, and frankly, we want them to have control over the edit of the clip. Okay. Right. So, so they come and they say to us, look, here is a clip. Right. And I mean, uh, you could say that the league like tells us which ones are the most uh, important ones or not, but you know, we have people on our team who are, who are giant basketball fans and they're helping. Right. So it's not like it's a surprise to anyone, which of these things are sort of more significant than others. Like we need the NBA to tell us, but like, but we have that conversation with them, right? So they'll come through and they'll say, okay, here's, you know, a hundred new moments, right? And then, you know, our team will go through them and it's up to us though, to manage the economy, to make sure that the rare stay rare, to make sure that the commons are sufficiently common so that new players coming in have a chance of getting something interesting for themselves. And, you know, that's a balance we have to do. And that's the thing the NBA doesn't have any instincts on, right? Like they can say this one should be rare and this one should be common, but they, they don't really have any experience in how rare should it be. And that's where our team comes in, right? We just hired a, a full-time economist. We have people who, you know, joined us back in the CryptoKitties days, you know, gaming background, uh, game designers, and the, you know, that team then they're making those decisions about like, well, what does the community want and what what is going to maintain the sense that what we're doing here is correct and that's a i mean it's it's witchcraft i'll be honest right like it's there is no right answer to that um there are a lot of wrong answers right but there is no sort of objective right answer and so you know it's it's just really smart people paying really close attention to what's happening in the market you know we have amazing internal reports that you know, that these giant scatter plots talking about like what trading action has had and what is the, the trend look like over time and, and how are people getting more excited about these kinds of moments and losing interest in those kinds of moments? And is that like a fundamental change in how users think? Or is that just that people are excited about this right now because of a news article? And that's just, you know, that the interest in that is going to rise again in, in time, right? And, and trying to balance all of that and make sure that we've got a good mix. If everything was just like, if, if every single uh, NBA top shot moment was, you know, these amazing game winning dunks, that wouldn't, first of all, express the richness that is the, the game of basketball. Right. But it also just, you know, I think part of what makes those special moments special is that they are outstanding in, you know, in, in what's happening. And so we have to make sure we're representing everything that happens even you know, could be that your favorite player, you know, had a, uh, a, you know, a funny little shot that not very many people noticed or not many people cared about, but that might be one of our moments. And, and so, you know, you, you, you can imagine that the fans of that team or that player getting really excited about that moment, even if overall, it's not sort of one of the biggest, the most exciting movers in, in the overall league. Yeah, no, that's super fascinating stuff. I mean, I really appreciate you kind of sharing some of the psychosis behind the players, the like technical aspects of it. I'd love to take it a little bit more to the technical side. You know, so what's interesting is Top Shot, you mentioned earlier that to make more people accept it, just like to make people accept websites, we didn't introduce like this is what a DNS is. This is what, you know, the, <laughs> you know, these are what's, this is what JavaScript does. People use it, had a good experience. So I'm looking on NBA Top Shot and I don't see any mention of blockchain where I haven't found it yet. I'm just cursory looking at it. There's, it doesn't say blockchain. It doesn't say like flow network. First of all, is it built on flow network? Yep. And it was, I'm assuming that was a conscious decision to be like, hey, you don't necessarily need to know the technical ways this is being done. You just need to know, you just need to be able to trust it. Is that, is that accurate? I, that's exactly right. Um, and, and it's, you know, like we knew that 
this phrase branding sort of, you know, has, has like sort of a weird, dirty context. But the reality is, is that's, that's one of the ways that we as humans sort of know what to trust, right? And so, you know, what we wanted to do is we wanted to make it, we just wanted to build a trusted brand. And we didn't want people to have to understand a lot of complex stuff. Mm-hmm. It's all there. All the information is there. You want to dig into it, it exists, right? But you shouldn't have to understand that stuff. And we certainly don't want the tail wagging the dog, right? Like the blockchain is, I think it's a transformative technology, but it's an enabling technology. It's not, it's not an end unto itself, right? It is a, it is a platform on which we can build things. And so, you know, like the iPhone's interesting, but, you know, Uber, Lyft and Angry Birds are what it, why it exists. Yeah. So we just wanted to focus on that stuff. And, and the people who care about this, right? The people who either want to recreate their own experience, right? They want to create their own experience. They're like, man, I want to create something like Topshot. They're going to go figure that out. They're going to know what the fundamental technology it's built on is. The people who are just curious, um, they can figure it out as well. But if you're not that curious and you just want to come into it, we, we don't need to put that in your face. And talk a little bit about what it meant for to build flow, right? So you mentioned earlier when we first started this conversation that you built CryptoKitties, it crashed the Ethereum network. And that's when you realized, hey, we need our own network. Like we need, what was it about? And we're not trying to knock these other networks, but what was missing and where did you see the opportunity? And, you know, I kind of want to understand a little for our audience to understand, like what was the fundamental difference? Because there are more, let's say blockchain tech, I mean, there's more currencies, there's more, this is the actual chain, right? You actually, flow is a system of, of the chain, mm-hmm. you know? And so I'd love for you to explain what was, what was missing and kind of how it got here. Yeah. I mean, that's, that was an interesting one. When we started Dapper Labs, we didn't, we knew we needed a different blockchain. We didn't think we were going to be the ones who had to build it. Um, and, and, you know, I think any startup would tell you that, uh, and certainly any investor would tell you, they certainly told us that trying to build three products at the same time is, is you know, you're just asking for trouble at that point in time. But like, I took a team of, you know, three engineers, product manager, me, we, we did heavy research on all of the teams who were promising to build blockchains in the first half of 2018, right? We went and we talked to all those people. Everyone was happy to talk to us, right? CryptoKitties is the, it was the poster child for why we needed some sort of new scaling solution. And so, you know, we probably read a hundred white papers, talked to 20 different teams or so. And in the end, we just like, the short version is that none of them were thinking about it from the standpoint of a consumer. And they, weren't thinking about it from the standpoint of somebody building the application themselves. Mm -hmm. They were solving the problems of building a protocol, right? So I have a protocol idea and it needs to scale. How can I make it scale? How can I, you know, increase that magic TPS number transactions per second? And they sort of answered that question for themselves without asking what trade-offs they were putting onto the application developers, right? So broadly speaking, you could put all of the blockchains we looked at in 2018 into one of three buckets. The first bucket were blockchains that were just, they were just about money, right? Um, you know, there's a bunch of big, Bitcoin is obviously the most famous one, yep. but there are other blockchains as well that are just about financial. We weren't interested in that. That's fine. Other people are. We wanted something that had smart contract capabilities. The second bucket of blockchains were those that decided that there was this idea of enough decentralization, that, that you didn't need to be that decentralized. Now, when people talk about decentralization, right, like it's like, why does it matter? And the thing that lots of people point to is, is the government, like, we don't want the government controlling the blockchain. Yes, that is a concern. And, and certainly in, in certain use cases, I can, in certain countries, I can see why that's a, that's a concern. But for me personally, it was much more about companies. I was worried about a company or set of companies figuring out, like building this really valuable network and then figuring out how to extract rent from that, right? Like that's, that's exactly what the business model of big companies is, right? How do I build something <laughs> that is really useful to a lot of people and then jack the price on it and make sure that my profit margins are massive? I love my iPhone. I love that Apple built my iPhone, but Apple could literally sell iPhones for half the price and still be profitable, right? Yeah, it's one of the bigger market products. And I know there's a big fight right now over the iTunes margin that they're taking from developers. Exactly. I know Tim Sweeney, local to me in North Carolina, is very vocal. He's the founder of Epic Games. Like, hey, they are stealing from us because there's no way 30% of revenue is what it takes to operate the iTunes store. Exactly. And so 
the idea that we would build this network and, and if it's, you know, if it's everything we think it can be and we can like have a whole new generation of software being built on this network, why do we think companies wouldn't figure out some way to capture that and, and engage in rent-seeking behavior on that? And so we knew that it was absolutely critical that we, we built it in a way that was truly decentralized. The third bucket of blockchains were those that understood that aspect of decentralization. They got it. And, you know, that's, you know, Ethereum is sort of the, the most exa- best example of that. Ethereum 2, you know, is being built uh, out now. And they basically said, well, we don't know how to make a blockchain faster and decentralized. So what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to make a network that's lots of little blockchains all talking to each other, right? And the, the terminology for this is sharding. And so, you know, if one blockchain is not fast enough, well, how about a thousand blockchains, right? We'll just make one blockchain that is one network that's actually a thousand little blockchains, but they're all synchronized, right? They all talk to each other. The reason why that is difficult is, and honestly, the details get a little bit technical, but it's incredibly difficult to build applications on top of that because each shard can only directly interact with the state stored in that shard. And if there's any data that it needs in another shard, it has to wait to get that data. And so you end up with this scenario where something that on an uncharted network would be a single transaction actually ends up needing to be five transactions, 10 transactions, 20 transactions. And it just gets so much more complicated because you have to send a message over to that, uh, you know, to to the other shard to, to get some information from it. And then the information comes back and then you act on that information. But in the meantime, that shard's still moving forward. And so the information you have is stale. And so we have this thing called eventual consistency, which is not compatible with financial um, transactions because, you know, I could check what your bank balance is on another shard. And by the time I get that information, maybe you've spent some of that money and now it's not safe for me to act on that. And so as an application developer, you can solve that, right? Like it is a, it is possible to build mechanisms that give you what we call atomicity, right? The ability for an all or nothing transaction to happen on a sharded uh, database, but it's really, really hard. And, and I, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm just like a little bit selfish, but as an application developer, I was like, why are you making me solve this problem? Like you solve this problem once for everybody. And that's in essence what Flow does is it says, look, like there are, we, we sort of slice the blockchain in a different direction, right? There was no question that we had to break the blockchain up into smaller parts. But instead of sort of breaking it into, you know, I think of it as like vertical slices where all of these blockchains next to each other sort of with this communication layer, we broke it into horizontal slices and we said, look, there's different jobs inside the blockchain. There's this job of having, there's a million transactions out there, bring them all together, make sure they're valid, put them into lumps that we call collections. And it's more efficient to transfer a bunch of transactions all at once in a collection instead of, you know, all of these little transactions. Let's make that a job and we'll have a set of nodes that do nothing but that. Then there's this notion of consensus, right, which is the heart of every blockchain, which is, you know, what is the canonical chain? How do we decide what the official blockchain is going to be? So we have a set of nodes that do nothing but that. They don't have to worry about transactions. All that's taken care of by the collection of they just have to build this chain um, that references those collections. Then the tricky one, right, is execution. We have all of these transactions, right? Thousands of transactions per second, tens of thousands of transactions per second. How do we push those through um, and do all of that, that computation together? And so that's the one place in our network where we, we create a sort of a narrow participation where we say, look, we don't need, we, we can have a small number of really powerful computers doing this work because the work we're giving them is what we call deterministic, right? It's math. We're asking them to add two plus two together. And if they don't come back with four, right? We, we, can, we don't have to vote. We don't have to have some sort of you know, mechanism of like, oh, gee, is, is, is five correct or is four correct? No, it's, <laughs> it's objectively true that two plus two is four. And so yes, the, co- the computation they're doing is more complicated than that. But if they make a mistake, once somebody points to the mistake, then everyone knows what that mistake is and, and we can punish those nodes. And so those nodes can't make a mistake uh, without being caught. And so that's the one part of the network where we don't have to worry about having this massive amount of decentralization. You know, and then we have thousands of nodes checking to make sure that those, those nodes are correct. So I went a little deep there, but the essence is, is, is that by building it more like an assembly line and having 
specialization in the different nodes rather than separating it into different shards or, or data regions, we were able to get really high performance without having to limit ourselves to just economic use cases and without having to limit participation in the parts of the network where the security really comes from. So, you know, we're running, you know, close to the top of the hour I have with you, but I got to ask you this question, you know, as Dapp, so Dapper, you're, you're there now, CTO, you're developing. So where will your time be spent going forward? Will it be to continue making the network as robust as possible? Will you be focusing more on new original games and titles using NFT? Will you be teaching other people how to develop on your network? Is that where your time and energy is going to be spent? Or are you going to tell me you're doing all three? Uh <laughs> well, as a company, we're doing it all, right? right? And so what my job is, is to find the people who can focus on each of those individual things, right? I mean, I'll be honest, I spend... I spend roughly half my time right now in interviews <laughs> um, and talking to people, right? And finding these, these people who can be the leaders of these areas. And look, they're not going to come in and understand all this stuff on day one, but we've already seen, right? With, with our existing staff members, there are, you know, I sort of was the, the lead architect of Flow in the beginning. And, it, you know, a lot of the ideas from Flow came from me, or at least I was in the room when we were developing them. There are now people who joined the team since we launched Flow who know aspects of this network better than I ever will. And yeah, that wasn't day one, right? When they joined the team. Right, right. But like after months, right? And, and, and you know, lots of interaction and, and lots of conversations together, they eventually, they understood how that one piece fit into the bigger whole. And now they have an understanding of that better than anyone else in the world. And that's, we're just going to repeat that over and over and over again, right? And so- do we have we have a whole team that to your point right is teaching other people how to how to build on flow i like to help with them a little bit but at this point in time the people on that team know more about building on flow than i do <laughs> and the same thing with the consensus algorithm i don't understand that as well as the team that's building the consensus stuff the programming language i don't understand it as well as the people who are building it and using it every day and and certainly the game stuff right like you know, in early Top Shot days, I helped a lot in terms of like how to structure this stuff. But now we've brought in people who, you know, either because they have experience in the gaming community or in collectibles community or just, you know, big sports fan who sort of, you know, first discovered this stuff through Top Shot. They're again, they're they're because they can spend all day on that stuff. Uh, it doesn't, you know, it, it, it takes a few months, but at that point in time, then then they can know it. Uh, better than any sort of generalist like myself. And so I become more of a coordinating force rather than an, an, an executing force. So how about what's your favorite thing to do, though? <laughs> of those three categories, helping other people build, building flow, or building games? Uh, my favorite thing is is just finding clever solutions to interesting problems, right? Yeah. And Flow has a ton of those, but games have a ton of those too, right? Like I, I built the, the genetic algorithm uh, in CryptoKitties and that was so much fun, right? Like that was, that was a really challenging problem. It had to, you know, it had to be able to run on the Ethereum blockchain, which is, which is you know, not very powerful as, as computers go. And, but it had to be interesting enough to keep people engaged um, and, and it did. And so that was a really interesting problem. When I look at some of the the gaming ideas that the team has for going forward, I'm I'm like, man, I wish I could spend time on that. Um, I probably won't on those, but you know, uh, I think there are there are aspects of flow that you know I think it would be really fun to spend more time on. But more often than not, these days when I when I am like, oh, I really want to engage on that thing, and I go and I talk to the team that's doing it. I very quickly realized that they're spending more time explaining things to me than I am giving them ideas that they didn't already have. And so it just, it, it's, it's become clear that, um, that, you know, that we've, we've got the right people on board and, and uh, they, they know this stuff better than I do. Oh uh, yeah. Well, listen, Dieter, I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Super exciting industry. Like you said, we're all noobs 2017, but you definitely know a lot more than most people. This is super fascinating. I also want to correct one thing because I did look it up. I do not own $3 of flow on Coinbase. I owe $3 something else on Coinbase. It's not currently tradable there, but you know when it does become available, this seems to me like a good bet to make uh, what you guys are doing are pretty, pretty exciting. And the fact that it's got scalable utility and use cases right out the gate, some big partnerships. I think you guys have a bright future ahead. 
You know, before you leave though, it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by the Salesforce platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Dieter, this is where we ask you questions not related to work, although somewhat related to work, so our audience can get to know you a little bit better. You ready? I'm ready. All right, do you own NFTs yourself? Absolutely, um, I, own, I own a few CryptoKitties. We actually made a rule that the team couldn't own CryptoKitties in the first year. Oh. And so I had to wait uh, in order to buy mine. And I've been gifted several NFTs. Do you have to buy it on the secondary market? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Currently CryptoKitties, NBA Top Shot, it's used in collectibles. Are you a collector outside of NFTs? I'm not. I don't have much of a collector collection personality. I like to collect uh, knowledge, right? I like to understand things. Um, and so, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go deep on a topic and learn, I don't know, basic electronics and how to build a simple circuit or I'll, you know, I'll binge a bunch of YouTube videos on, on how to grow dragon fruit. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's, uh, I, I don't really have a super strong collector person, uh, personality. Fascinating. If you weren't in blockchain, what do you think, what else would you be doing? Well, I mean, I spent most of my career building technology for Apple platforms because I think none of this technology matters if people can't use it. Um, and Apple was, you know, for a very, very long time, the, the sort of the company that got that the most. I, th I think that's changed somewhat, but I'd probably still be a mobile developer um, and, and almost certainly in some sort of consumer, consumer facing use case. Um, probably not games, but uh, yeah, definitely, definitely technology, probably mobile, almost certainly iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. And then outside of work, give us an idea. You mentioned growing dragon fruit. So it sounds like you have a green, green thumb. But what do you do for fun outside of outside of work? Well, I mean, there isn't a lot of outside of work these days. Um, the, the, the advantage of, of a lot of people paying attention to the work you're doing is, uh, you know, is, is uptake uh, of your products. The disadvantage is that things get very busy. I have a couple of kids. I love to spend time with them. We're a, we're a family that likes to go for walks. And yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm just really in, into botany these days. I'm not growing, like I don't have the time to actually grow a lot of stuff, but I've just been doing a lot of research into like different plants and stuff. And so I now know the names of, you know, a bunch of different trees and shrubs and stuff all around our neighborhood. And, and it's something that we'll do with the family is we'll go out for a walk with the family and we'll just, we'll research these plants and stuff that we come along that look interesting to us. Well, listen, I don't know if you're into them, but as far as I know, aloe plants are very hard to kill. So they require almost no maintenance. If you get an aloe plant in your house, like it's going to live. I mean, that's the way mine are. So if you need some <laughs> plants that you are like, you know, tough because you can't give them enough attention, try aloe. That's good advice. Succulents are very hardy. <laughs> Dieter, I want to thank you for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for running over with us a little bit. You know, you're in a fascinating space. Thank you for t telling us about the nature of collectibles, how you guys built this thing. And, uh, you know, obviously I think it's very exciting times. I don't fully understand because I'm not a collector too, but I can recognize what the crowd is doing and they are into it. So therefore this has a lot of legs. Thanks for joining us, man. It was a real pleasure. Thanks so much. Thanks.